You've heard me read it many times. Let me read it again. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And uh, I want to welcome you with that verse. The reason we gather together this morning to worship Jesus Christ, to ascribe to him the glory due his name. And what a sweet, sweet thing that we get to do this all together. What a sweet thing. Uh, there's something really special about um, what, we, what we've been barred from lately, uh, but what we're getting to do this morning. And there's a phrase in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 14 that says, when, when the whole church, when the whole church comes together, and it speaks about that being a very special thing. And so I want to I just, you know, I want you to understand that when I say it's special that we get to gather together the whole church and take the Lord's Supper together, when I say that's a special thing, I want, I want it to be clear that that's not just um, me being sent- sentimental or anybody here being sentimental, but rather that is the Scripture. It's the Scripture. So I want to read a few verses about how special the church gathered together Take the Lord's Supper together. Look, listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 4. It says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. And he's talking about a specific situation in 1 Corinthians 5, but I want you to understand that phrase. When you're assembled together, and then it adds this, in it with the power of the Lord Jesus. So it's a special thing. That's scripture. Let me give another verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says this phrase in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together. Now again, he's, this is a situation where he's rebuking this church. But I want, to, I want you to see this phrase. When you come together. It says it again in verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, he's trying to direct their coming together as a church and give them some instructions. Verse 20, he says it again. When you come together, and he mentions for them, he's correcting them. It's not the Lord's Supper that you take, but we want it to be. He says, when you come together, same phrase. Look at verse 33. 11.33 says, So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, speaking about communion, the Lord's Supper, when you come together. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So again, you got this phrase over and over again, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. Chapter 12 speaks about the body of Christ, and chapter 14, verse 23 is that verse I was mentioning a moment ago. It says, therefore... If therefore the whole church comes together. So just think about that phrase. So the scripture is speaking about this as a special thing that Paul, uh, when he writes to the Corinthians, is wanting to guide this meeting. When you all gather together and there's this connection between this and us getting to take the Lord's Supper together like we're about to get to do here in just a moment. And so let me read just a couple more. I know this is a lot of scripture here, but it's beautiful. Chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 
verse 16, the same thing, coming together to take the Lord's Supper. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So I love that. These things being slammed together. The body of Christ. And we all partake of one bread. This, uh, the body of Christ coming together to take the Lord's Supper. It's a special thing according to the scriptures. And I praise God that we get to, uh, after a, uh, a long time not being able to, that we get to do this together this morning with the power of the Lord Jesus with us. And so I want us to meditate as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. I want us to meditate specifically on a passage of Scripture that's in within this whole context here. It's in chapter 11. We're going to focus in on verse 23 through verse 29 as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So that phrase tells us what we're about to do is from the Lord. It's not from church tradition. It's not from uh, human ideas, but this is from the Lord. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Beautiful passage of scripture that Jesus takes his bread, this broken bread, this representing the broken body of Jesus, that Jesus went to the cross, he was crucified, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sin, God's, God's wrath was poured out on him. Instead of on us, his blood was shed. So Jesus Christ crucified. And we remember that. It says, do this. What we're about to do, take this bread and remember. This is his body which is broken for you. Remember it this morning. Remember what Christ has done for us this morning. Verse 25. It says, in the same way also... He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant in my blood. We get to participate. We get to be a part of the new covenant with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ being shed. And so we take this bread and we take this cup. And we're remembering a beautiful gospel this morning. Our Savior has died, crucified, bled, so that we could be brought near to God. So that we could be in relationship. We could be in covenant with God. Without Christ's death on that cross, we'd have no way to be in relationship with Him. Except a relationship which is God is God and we are His enemies. And we go to hell forever. But Christ has made a way through the cross. That we could be in this loving relationship with Christ. Listen to it, verse 27. And what we have here 
And I want, you, I want us to think about this as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. What we have here is a sober warning. Listen to this sober warning. It tells you how serious this is. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So that's a warning. There's a way to participate in an unworthy manner. This, is, this scripture and the warning that's coming is the reason why we encourage only those who are in Christ, baptized believers in Jesus. You've been brought in to Christ. Only those should participate. But, but if, if you're not in Christ, we're thankful that you're here. But, but this scripture is a warning that there's a way to participate in what we're about to do in an unworthy manner. We would ask you not to take the cup and the bread this morning. But listen to the warning. It says, with this in mind, it says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And it continues on, but let's stop there. There's this warning of judgment. That if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, instead of this thing being a blessing, it's an eating and drinking of of judgment. So that's a sober, sober warning. And so as we think about these two things, we're remembering Jesus Christ crucified and we're taking this warning that we should examine ourselves as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And what you have here is this soberness yet rejoicing, this, this trembling and yet joy at the same time. So these, these emotions, these affections are colliding they're slamming together as we get ready to take the bread and take the cup this morning it's a glorious thing if you think about this phrase in psalm 211 it says this rejoice with trembling psalm 211 rejoice a command for us to rejoice with trembling these two emotions these two affections slamming together we're rejoicing because our savior has died and brought us in the covenant with god praise to the living god and we tremble because he's a great and mighty god and we don't want to participate in a manner that's unworthy and so what we want to do right now uh, our brothers are going to go ahead and begin to distribute out the bread and the cup and as they do that, I want to encourage everyone here to, in, in this, sort of, um, this sort of silent prayer, this sort of silent prayer in your heart, you can have the Bible open in front of you, you can have your eyes closed, however you decide to do that, but this sort of silent prayer and reverence and yet rejoicing and joy before God, let's do that right now and consider Christ, remember Christ and examine ourselves as the bread and cup are distributed. Let's do that now.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll eat and drink together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this holy moment, Lord. God, help us to obey you in this moment, to remember. And you told us to do this in remembrance of you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you help us to remember, not just with the intellect, but with the eyes of faith. God, we know how glorious you are. Creator of the heavens and the earth, majestic in power, unstoppable, untamable God. And Lord, we know, we realize, God, how sinful we have been. How rebellious, Lord. And God, in your justice, it would be absolutely fair. We know it, God. You are a just judge. And we, pra we praise you for that. A just judge who's angry with the wicked every day. God, we, we praise you for this characteristic of yours. But God, we realize that that would mean that if, if you were fair to us, that we would be destroyed forever. That we would be in hell forever. And so God, we praise you for the cross. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace and mercy and love poured out at the cross. Lord, we remember you as you were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord Jesus, sweating drops of blood, filled with holy anxiety, knowing that you were about to absorb the wrath that was due us. And yet, Lord, you stepped out of that garden. You moved forward anyways. Lord Jesus, you set your face like flint and you moved forward to die in our place, to be our beautiful substitute, to be our slaughtered lamb. We praise you. You're the lamb who was slain that takes away the sin of the world. God, we can't get over your mercy. Not by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to your mercy. And so, Lord, we give you praise. Lord, even as your people, even as your people, Lord, we see weakness in ourselves. And God, we know that you told us in your word that we're in this process of sanctification, but one day we're going to see you face to face and, and be fully made like you, Lord, and we praise you for that. But God, in this time, we see sin in our lives, Lord. We see pride. We see arrogance and selfishness. And God, I just pray, Lord, that by the power of the cross, by the power of your blood, that you would free us from these things, that you would remove pride from us, you would remove selfishness from us, Lord. Make us more and more a people removed from sin and set apart to you, Lord. You are our Lord. You're our King. Put the power, God, I pray that you would put the power of the gospel on display as you make us unholy people holy like Christ. 
Father, please, we're your children. Work in us, Lord. God, I pray that you would make us a people full of good works, full of, of acts of righteousness, Lord, that put your glory on display. Lord, we believe your gospel. This gospel that we remember right now is powerful enough to do that in a group of weak people. So, Lord, we remember you. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to do this. Lord, the longest we've ever been without taking of the bread and the cup like you told us to. And God, we praise you so much for letting us do it now. Thank you for this privilege, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll take the bread and the cup, but we're going we're gonna to eat and drink in response to Jesus' words. In Matthew 26, it says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's worship Christ. Will you stand with us?
awesome. Did you hear that? Man, that was awesome. Can we do that again? Just, just kidding. The Lord is worthy of all praise. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and before we look at that, I just want to just declare a few things, just declare a few truths to you. There's a man from Nazareth, his name is Jesus, he was born over 2,000 years ago, and I want you to know that, that he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. And He is King. This, this man from Nazareth who is God created the heavens and the earth. He redeemed the heavens and the earth. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Not only because he's God, but he also earned that as man. Because he suffered bad. He humbled himself unimaginably. He was slaughtered on a cross for your sins, for my sins. He died and was raised from the dead. He's in heaven. There's a man in heaven right now who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's building his church right now. You're here right now because he's right there. He's coming back. He's coming back in flaming fire and vengeance on his enemies and to save those who bow their knee to him. 
He's going to judge the world in righteousness and he's going to save his faithful. Are you faithful? What if all that I just said was true? What if you really believed everything I just said? Mind-boggling statements that I just said. What if you believe that? What would be your response? What, what, what should be your response? We're going to see in this text that there's really only two responses. One is worship. And anything less is the other response. Rejection. So let's pray before we look at this text in Matthew 2. Father in heaven, we come to you in the only name in which sinful men and women can come to you. The name above all names. Jesus, Savior, Lord, King. We praise you for your mercy and we praise you for your Son. Lord Jesus, we do praise you. We do thank you. You you are so far above our imagination. You humbled yourself so far beyond our imagination. And you did it out of love. You rescued people who were not worthy of rescue. We praise you. And we ask for the Spirit of God right now to exalt you. Holy Spirit, glorify the Son. Do the work that you've promised to do. And exalt the name of Jesus in this place today. May he be king in our hearts in this church right now. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 2. This is uh, Merry Christmas. Please erase all images of manger scenes as we look at Matthew 2. And for those of you, for the two of you that actually like my little fill-in-the-blank worksheets, uh, I've only had six months to prepare for this sermon, so I ran out of time. I'm sorry. But we are jumping back into Matthew. We only preached two sermons in Matthew. Ryan took the first one and uh, Dustin took the second one. We finished chapter one and now we're in chapter two. But I do want to remind you what, what the gospel of Matthew is all about. Just like all the other gospel writers, this gospel is about proving that Jesus is the Christ, proving who Jesus is and what he did for sinners. So that his people might believe and have forgiveness and eternal life. And so that his enemies also might be exposed and be condemned forever. Ryan, when he preached in chapter 1, he said that Matthew presents Jesus as the promised one. The Messiah King. And he said, he said the promised one is promised no longer. Amen. 
Dustin said these first two chapters prove that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus, above anybody, Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to be the Messiah King. Because he, he and He alone fulfills all of Scripture. We're going to see a whole lot of that today. And so, what we've seen so far in chapter 1 is this genealogy or this genesis of Jesus. The promised son of Abraham has come. The promised son of David has come. This huge genealogy All of it finds its end point in Jesus. The son of Abraham, the son of Matthew, but he's also the son of God. Conceived from the Holy Spirit, the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, the God-man. Literally, as Matthew says, he is God with us, Emmanuel. His name is his mission. Yahweh saves for he will save his people from their sins. And chapter 1 ends with this statement. She had given birth to a son. And they called his name Jesus. And so as we look at this, I want to remind you that what we're looking at here is is actually history. This is not a fairy tale. This is history. But it's real special history. It's real history and it's real theology. Is what I like to call theological history. And this history that is recorded by Matthew is here to confirm Jesus' identity. The theology of who Jesus really is. And let me tell you something. Only God can write real theology in real history. And so let's walk through each of these sections and just look first at the, at the history that we see here. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king." says here that Jesus was born. And don't let the magnitude of that slip by you. The Word became flesh. All those things I said earlier are, are, are true. And we, we cannot, I'm telling you, sitting right here right now, you cannot grasp that magnitude. The Creator has emerged in his creation. Dustin said, the the, the one who wrote and created Genesis had a Genesis. Why? Why was Jesus born? Chapter 1, verse 21 says, to save his people from their sins. Chapter 2 tells us to reign as king. Because these these Gentiles come to town saying, where is the king? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And so when was he born? Right on time. Right on script. 
just as the scriptures had said, he was born in Bethlehem. We're going to see that right on time when in the days of Herod, around 5 or 6 B.C. But Paul sums it up when the fullness of time had come. God sent his son, born of a woman. Next section, we see these magi, what the text calls wise men, who come from the east seeking this newborn king of the Jews. And they come to Jerusalem looking for him. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So who are these wise men? Who are these magi? That's literally what the word says. I think wise men or kings might be a little deceiving, but they are nobility, and I believe they've come from Babylon. What they really are are these mystical advisors of the king. These magicians, these astrologers, these uh, sorcerers, enchanters, whatever words you want to use. All these words we get from the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel, about, I want to say about 500, maybe more than that, years before this. He was part of that group as an exile from Jerusalem, from, from Israel. He was part of this group of advisors to the king, these wise men, these enchanters, these magicians, these magi. And these guys have come, it says, they've come to Jerusalem. That's like 800 miles. Two or three, four months maybe. Why in the world did they come from there to here? It says, we saw his star. We saw his star. So these magi have seen this incredible, unusual, astrological phenomenon, which I'm not even going to explain. Some people try to explain, but this is some crazy, God-wrought, supernatural, astrological phenomenon that moves where and when it wishes and looks like a star. And it has brought these men, these Gentiles, 800 or more miles to find the king of the Jews. And they connect this star with an Old Testament prophecy from the Jewish scriptures. And and I believe this comes from Daniel's providential existence in Babylon as a part of this guild five or six hundred years before. And the fact that Jews in exile still live there. Big Jewish community there. But yet they've tied this and Matthew is given this indication. And any good Jew reading this would, would hear his star has risen. The king's star has risen and connect it back to this great prophecy from 1400 years earlier. In Numbers. When there was this other Babylonian magician named Balaam who the, the king from Moab had hired to come and curse the Israelites, to pronounce a, a, a spell on them. But God providentially interceded, 
and put God put His words in Balaam's mouth, and He uh, put out these four different God brought God breathed prophecies. Instead of cursing the Israelites, He blessed them. And in those oracles, He said this: "I see Him. I see Him, but not now. I behold Him." But not yet. A star shall come. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star, a scepter, a king. This is a messianic prophecy from 1400 years before this moment. Balaam's prophecy. And Daniel's, not Daniel, but Matthew's making this connection. With this prophecy and these magi and this star that Jesus is this promised king. And so they've come 800 miles to do what? To worship him. To worship him. And I want you to realize the spectacle. Look at verse uh, 1 and 2. It says, behold. It's like, take a look at this. We got magi coming from the east and they're saying something and so i want you to realize this is not just three guys you know creeping into jerusalem there's this is a spectacle these are nobility there's an entourage going here and they're asking people this word is getting around about this star that has risen where is the king of the jews so they created quite the stir and news has gotten around and it says verse three when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Troubled. News of the Messiah has come and Jerusalem is troubled. The king is troubled. Who, 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 is, who is this king, Herod? Well, he's not really king. He's the illegitimate king of the Jews. He's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. He, he's, he's not a son of David. He's a son of Esau. He's appointed by Rome, not by God. God said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Herod is the illegitimate king a son of Esau, an Edomite, and he's master of two things. He is a master builder. Man, he, he, he underwent, undertook some amazing civil architectural projects, but he's also the master of murder. Man, this, this guy was a bad character. He was a, a paranoid murderer. He killed one of his wives, he killed several members of his own family, including some of his own sons. Anybody that threatened his rule, he executed. And we see what he does here. He slaughters a whole town of babies. Why is he troubled? Because the Magi's question in Jerusalem has set up a question who is the king of the Jews. 
But why is all of Israel troubled? I mean, good news. Messiah has come. We can get rid of Herod. We can get rid of Rome. Why in the world is everybody troubled by this news that maybe the Messiah has come? Well, I can think of three reasons. One is, if they know Herod, they know trouble's about to come. Anybody threatens in the least bit his rule or reign, trouble's coming. And man, does it ever in Bethlehem. But the ruling class, they, they, maybe they like it. Maybe they like the way things are going. We don't want to, we, we know what Messiah is going to do when he comes. He's going to change everything. I don't want anything to be changed. And, and maybe even the common people know that Messiah is supposed to come and throw off the oppressors. Man, we don't want war. And so Jerusalem is troubled. And so Herod then, in verse 4, asked this question, where the Christ is supposed to be born. Look at verse 4. He says, he, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. They quote saying, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you, from Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the very fact that he asked this question gives a validity to the Christ, a recognition that the Messiah is supposed to come and a validity to the Scriptures. But you know what? Superstition is not saving faith. You know, how many people do we know love to quote the Bible and they're fascinated with prophecy, but they don't know Jesus? And so here Herod is asking the experts, where is the Christ to be born? And they answer him, in Bethlehem. And so Herod is using this information now to create this wicked plot. Look at verse 7. So after he gets that information, it says he summons the wise men secretly. Why? To ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Okay, you guys go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I can go and worship him too. So is this why he wanted to find out? So he could go worship the Christ? I don't think so. I don't think so. But this reveals just how wicked he is. That he's going to do this secretly. And he's really plotting to kill the Messiah. To kill God's anointed at the expense of the entire town of Bethlehem. Under the guise that he just wants to worship him. Verse 9 says, after they listened to the king, the Magi then went on their way. And behold... The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And so the Magi hear from the king, get directions to, to Bethlehem, and they leave. And, and, it, and it seems like the star maybe had disappeared and reappeared, or at least it had stopped and now started moving, and it guides them, supernaturally guides them until it rests right over where Jesus was staying. And they were thrilled. Man, they were thrilled beyond imagination. It says they, were, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But here's a question. What about the Jews? Who, who from Jerusalem went with them to Bethlehem? None. Not one. It says, after listening to the king, they, nobody else, they went on their way. And so what we see here is the beginnings of the rejection of the Messiah. While at the same time we see Gentiles from far away coming to the Messiah. We see Gentiles come and worship the rejected Jewish Messiah. Look at verse 11. It says, going into the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, not Mary, him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So notice the, the star comes to rest over a house, not a manger. There's no shepherds, no little drummer boy. This is... This is two years, maybe, after Jesus' birth. But when they see the child, they fall down and worship him. Here's mystics from the east, 800 miles away from outside of Israel, have come now and they fall down and worship a little baby in a nowhere out-of-the-way out of town. Gentile nobles with a very limited knowledge of Scripture at best, they fall down and kiss the sun. Gentiles worshiping the already rejected Jewish Messiah. And they shower him with gifts. And in any informed Jewish reader would think of all these texts from the Old Testament that talks about this, especially uh, Isaiah 60, which I don't have time to read, but just prophesies this event taking place and foreshadows an even greater streaming to the Christ of Gentiles. And I see about 200 of them right now. 2,000 years later. And God has orchestrated every bit of all this. Look at the last verse here, verse 12. Talking about the Magi now being warned in a dream. Being warned in a dream by God here not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Remember, Herod said, go to Bethlehem and bring me word back so that I can worship him. They don't do that. And so how does the story end? With the slaughter of every two-year-old or un under baby boy in Bethlehem. You see that in verse 16, it says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. A slaughter. I'm not trying to preach Ryan's text from next week. But what caused that? What caused that? 
What caused verse 16? Verse 12. God warned them not to return to Herod. Herod realized he's been tricked. Tricked by who? And so every baby in Bethlehem is slaughtered except one. Jesus. Man, how did Jesus manage to escape? Verse 13, God warned Joseph and told him what was going to happen and they left before the slaughter. Well, why didn't God warn everybody else? Why did it have to happen this way? One, because God is God. And then because God is protecting his son, because this happened to Moses and Israel, and that Jesus is going to obediently relive Israel's life and bear the sins of his people on the cross, and that Jesus is going to perfectly perform this role of deliverer as the greater Moses and the greater Exodus and all that stuff. This is, this is one of the main points here. That God is working all things together according to the counsel of His own will. He's working all things. This is the theology of history. This is the theological history that we're viewing right here in Matthew. That God is working all things to accomplish His purposes to crush his enemies, to save his people, and to glorify his son. And Matthew is full of it. I want you to see that Matthew's main goal here is identifying Jesus. Identifying who this man from Nazareth really is. And, and, and by doing so, by rightly identifying Jesus, he accomplishes these three, these three purposes. He warns those who will reject Jesus his enemies. He saves those who trust Christ, his people. And he glorifies Jesus for who he really is, the Son of God and the Christ. John explains it this way in his gospel. He says, I write these things to you. This is why I'm writing these things to you. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing that, you may have life in his name. And so the gospel writers, Matthew, are, are trying to answer for you the most, listen to me, the most important question in the universe. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Your eternal Destiny hangs on your right understanding of that and your belief in that. Who is Jesus? Who is this one born in Bethlehem? And so Matthew's main goal is to identify Jesus rightly for you. And I want you to notice what his main tool for doing that is. History. Matthew's main tool in identifying who Jesus is is divinely orchestrated history. Look at verse 22, chapter 1, verse 22. He says, 
All this took place to fulfill. That's another way of saying, I'm going to show you Jesus' identity by how he fulfills this divinely orchestrated history. So, so Matthew is pulling together for us all. He's pulling together all of these strands of prophecy and typology and theology and history. He's pulling all of this together and he's showing us how it all miraculously identifies one man. Jesus of Nazareth. Born in this little obscure, good-for-nothing town. And I want you to ask this question. What are the odds? What are the odds of all these things in this book? Written over thousands of years. That they would all find their fulfillment in one man. What are the odds of that? They're incalculable. But I want you to know it's not chance, it's orchestration. Sovereign, foreordained, supernatural, divine orchestration. God working all things according to the counsel of his own will. Man, I want you to get a hold of that. I want, I want everybody to get a hold of that. Because I'm telling you, if you ever get a hold of this, or this ever gets a hold of you, you will worship Jesus. And you will love this book. And it will change your life. And it will change your perspective. It will change your priorities. It will change everything. It really will. What are the odds? Matthew's identification through divine orchestration is what's on display here. I want to ask you about these two texts that he's pointing to in the Old Testament. This prophecy in Numbers and this prophecy in Micah. And I want to throw out a few, few things you've heard about. You've got this star. You've got the line of Judah. You've got the shepherd he talks about here. You've got this king he's talking about here. You've got Moses that he's, he's recapitulating here. Like how do all those things come together here? What do they have in common? Well, they're all from the scriptures and they all miraculously identify one man. Jesus. You, you, you see here, he's talking about this star rising in Judea that, that identifies Jesus coming from this Old Testament prophecy from Balaam in Numbers. You've got this Bethlehem-born king who is also going to shepherd his people. And that's coming from Micah's prophecy in chapter 5. And you've got this Moses connection where all, all of a sudden, Herod's like Pharaoh... And he's slaughtering baby boys, but one man delivered. One man is rescued miraculously. And Jesus is beginning right now. This is where it starts. He begins to, to re, 
relive this life of Israel and life of Moses. We're going to see that as the narrative unfolds, as Matthew unfolds. Turn to Numbers real quick. Numbers chapter 22. And I want to talk about this promised king of the Jews. And, and I, want you to, I want you to make this a habit. When, when you see the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, man, you should go study that text. You will be enriched. Jesus will be glorified. Like for tomorrow, when you sit down with your Bible and you see one of those little indented passages in the New Testament and you know that that's a quote from the Old, go back and study that. I want you to see this promised king of the Jews in Numbers 22. But I want to remind you where this first comes from in, in Genesis. Where God promises Abraham a nation. That nations and kings would come from him. And then Abraham's great-grandson Judah is promised to be the kingly line. And it talks about this lion, this one that's going to come from the loins of Judah, that's going to rise up, is going to be like a lion. This is where we get this concept of the lion of Judah. And then we see in Numbers 22, 22.5, we see this Moabite king who sends for Balaam, this magician, this sorcerer, this enchanter, whatever you want to call him, this magi, I would say, who is from the what would later become the Babylonian era uh, area near the river, it says, near the river Euphrates. Verse 7, it says they are hiring Balaam for divin divination, basically to cast a spell, to, to pronounce a curse on Israel. The Moabites are scared now of the Israelites, and they're trying to get them cursed. And, and then Balaam uh, responds with four prophecies from God. The first one here in chapter 23, 23.5, it says, The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth, and he says in verse 8, How can I curse the one whom God has not cursed? And then in his second prophecy in verse 16 he says the Lord again met with Balaam and put a word in his mouth in verse 21 he starts talking about a king he says the Lord their God is with them God is with them and the shout of a king is among them and in verse 24 we hear this lion again Behold a people as a lion as it rises up and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. The lion of Judah. Look at the third prophecy in chapter 24. It says the Spirit of God came upon Balaam again here. Verse 3, it says the oracle of Balaam the oracle of a man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. And what does he see? He sees a king. Verse 7. His king, the Lord's king, 
shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. What kind of king is this going to be, Balaam? I would dare say a lion king. Not the lion king, but a king like a lion. Look in verse 8. He's going to eat up nations, his adversaries. He shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion, like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Look at the fourth prophecy in chapter 24, verse 14. Look what he says to Moab. He says, come, I'm going to let you know what this people is going to do to your people in the latter days. What does he see? He sees the prophecy that's quoted or pointed to in Matthew. He says, I see him, but not now. Chapter 24, verse 17. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And what will this king do? Verse 17, crush the head of Moab. Sounds like Genesis 3.15. And who else is in trouble? Edom. Verse 18. Edom shall be dispossessed, kicked out of the land. Now can you imagine being the evil, illegitimate king in Israel who is not a son of David but is a son of Edom hearing that? The star, you know that star? It's risen. And so if you're Herod and you halfway believe the scriptures and some fancy magi from Babylon roll into town and say, guess what? The real king of the Jews has been born. We've seen his star. No wonder it says when King Herod heard this, he was troubled. Turn to Micah real quick. Micah. I just want to roll through this. Micah chapter 1. Look at the subtitle. If, if your Bible has those little subtitles, mine says, The Coming Destruction. Now remember, this is the scroll. Herod said, hey, tell me where the Christ is going to be born. This is the one they pulled out and rolled out and read and studied and answered that question. It starts out, the coming destruction. Pay attention, O earth. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, it said. And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So this is the intro to that sweet little baby in the manger, baby in the manger prophecy. Look at verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the high place of Judah? If, is, this not, is it not Jerusalem? No wonder Jerusalem was troubled. Get chapter 2. Starts out, woe to the oppressors. In chapter 2, verse 12, we see this shepherd king who is also God. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, I will, 
God begins a series of I wills. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep. God's going to play the role of shepherd. And he says, their king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. This is the ruler from Bethlehem that's going to shepherd my people Israel. In chapter 3, chapter 3, little subtitle says, Rulers and Prophets Denounced. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Jerusalem's going to be plowed down. Jerusalem's going to become a heap of ruins. And remember, this is the scroll that the rulers uh, and the scribes and the priests are unrolling to answer his question. This This is what they're reading. It's addressed to them. Look at chapter 4. The Lord is going to rescue Zion. That's the subtitle I have in verse 6. But where's the king? There is no king in Jerusalem, but there will be. Look at verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Chapter 5. This is where the exact quote comes from. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, about this ruler to be born in Bethlehem. But to you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Comma. Matthew doesn't quote the rest of this. One who is to be ruler whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Or as the King James says, whose coming forth has been from old, from everlasting. This this coming forth, this birth of one who is from eternity. This God-man, the birth of the shepherd king who will be their peace. Look at verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The Prince of Peace, a shepherd to his people. And a lion to his enemies. Look at verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion. Verse 9 it says all your enemies shall be cut off. But look at chapter 6. You think I'm preaching on Matthew or Micah? Chapter 6 verse 4 you get this little unifying reminder of history. 
God's divinely orchestrated history to project what's going to happen in the future. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery before I sent you Moses, Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. So we get Moses, Exodus, Balaam, star, ruler coming forth from Bethlehem who's going to shepherd his people and be a lion to his enemies. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And how does Micah end? The very end. The very end with this beautiful, clear gospel. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And he will again have compassion on us for he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. And so where does all this history and typology and theology find its fulfillment in one man, Jesus. And how in the world does all this history and prophecy and typology and theology find its fulfillment in one man? This divine orchestration by God. What are the odds? What are the odds that one man would fulfill all these genealogies? You know Matthew and Luke have two different genealogies. The Bible is full of genealogies. Starting with Adam and just the whole family of mankind continues to get narrower and narrower and narrower down to one man. What are the odds? What are the odds of a moving star identifying your birth? I promise you, my friends, there was no star over Anderson Hospital in Meridian, Mississippi in November of 1966. Who has a star? What are the odds? What are the odds that these century-old writings would actually rightly predict three different origins of one man? Was Jesus from Bethlehem, or was he supposed to be from Galilee, or was he supposed to be from Nazareth? And the answer is yes. Scriptures prophesied Messiah from all those, all three of those places. And how in the world did he get to all three of those places? Well, he got to Bethlehem because Rome declared a global census, and and he got to. Um, hold on a second. Lost, lost my place there. And he gets down to, to Egypt because of a dream and a, and a Pharaoh-like king that's trying to murder all the children. Then how does he get back to, to Israel? Another dream and Herod's death. And from there he gets back to Galilee and Nazareth. This divine orchestration by God. And what are the odds of a virgin birth? What are the odds that Daniel would influence magicians? What are the odds that Gentiles would actually bring gifts to baby Jesus 
in accordance with Scripture. Or that the Jews would reject their own Messiah according to Scripture. Or that the rulers of Israel would now complete this prediction, the very first prophecy in the Bible, that, they, that God would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What are the odds that a man from Nazareth would actually recapitulate the entire life of Moses and Israel? And what are the odds that all those things, not just one of those things, but all those things, would find their fulfillment in one man? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, this great proof and history and identity of Jesus Christ demands a response. And there are only two categories of response, and we see them in this text. Worship or rejection. And anything less than worship is rejection, whether it be an outright hatred or unbelief or superstition or, or indifference or apathy or any of those things, it's not worship. We see both of these things, all of these things in this text. How did the Jews respond? They had all this history. They had all this scripture. And how did they respond? They, they were waiting on the Messiah, and then a credible word of the Messiah comes in accordance with Scripture. They look for themselves and see this is true. They send a guy to Bethlehem based on the Scriptures. And how many Israelites go with them? Zero. How far do you think it was from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Think about that. Maybe 100 miles, maybe? Weeks journey? Six miles. It's like from here to the airport. Here to Jackson Airport. 1,400 years. All this scripture, all these promises. The Messiah has come. The son of David has arrived. The redeemer of Israel is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And not one Israelite took the time to walk 90 minutes to see the king of the Jews. Not one Jew took an afternoon stroll to see the son of God. He came to his own and his own received him not. From the very beginning, he was despised and rejected by men. They would not have the real king of the Jews reign over him. And later they would trade Barabbas, another murderer, for the king of the Jews. How did the Gentiles respond? Worship. They traveled 800 miles into hostile territory on maybe one promise from God. And they rejoiced exceedingly. And they fell down on their faces and worshipped a little baby as king. How should we respond? 
Man, you got to realize the things that we're talking about here are so mind-boggling. They're too mind-boggling to ignore. God has graciously moved heaven and earth and all of Scripture to prove to you that Jesus is who He says He is. And He has done what He has said He has done. The Creator of heaven and earth has actually come into the world to save sinners. This baby in the manger is God in the flesh. He was slaughtered on the cross out of love and mercy and grace to save you from your sins. We should bow. Bow before Jesus, the King of the Jews, or die in your sins. That's it. Bow before King Jesus or die in your sins. There is mercy. Mercy at the cross. Mercy at the feet of Jesus Christ. The King of glory. The Christ. The Son of the living God. Do you really believe this? It changes everything. It really does. You're going to be like the Magi or are you going to be like Jerusalem? You know, like Herod, you can believe the Bible and still hate Jesus. Like the religious leaders, you can believe in the Christ and not care enough to drive a few miles to worship Him. You can be like the people of Israel. You can know about the Christ but be troubled that he might disrupt your life. I can tell you something, my friend. He will. He'll take away your life. And he'll give you a better one. Eternal life forgiven. Come and worship the King of the Jews. We sing a little song that says, Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. Raise the anthem. Our loudest praises ring. We crown him Lord of all. I'm here to tell you, brothers, sisters, Jesus is king now. He was king before he busted into the earth. He was king in that manger when these magi fell before him. He was king on that cross, king of the Jews. You know, that title is only used twice in Matthew. Once at his birth and once at his death. When they smash a crown of thorns on his head and mock him in a purple robe and hang a sign above him and say, This is Jesus. He's king of the Jews. Is he your king? The Bible says the Jew is one circumcised in the heart. Has he changed your heart? I pray that we would be a church, we would be a people who bow before Jesus and rejoice exceedingly. Let's pray. Father, these things are too wonderful for our minds. 
We can't behold the glory of Christ without your help. Pray that you would make us a people who truly worship Christ. Our lives would reflect a true worship of him. Not some religious superstition or tradition or indifference, but a love for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We declare, Lord, you are right. Jesus is king. May he reign. We pray that he would return and come and right all the wrongs in this world and save us from our sins. We have no other hope. We have no other king. Jesus, Son of God, Christ, Lord of all. We praise you for sending him into this world to save sinners. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, sing to God's Father.